Thank you, Ellie, and uh, good afternoon, everyone, um, from wherever you're joining us. Um, thank you very much for yeah, giving up your time to come and have a listen. So, yeah, my name's Sam. I'm a GP. I'm coming to you from my practice in Sefton in, nor in uh, the northwest of England, um, where I practice as a salary GP. And I'm also an NIHR academic clinical lecturer at the University of Manchester. And my research is all focused on uh, cancer diagnosis as it relates to primary care. You know, so what can we do, you know, with better with what we're doing now to try and improve early cancer diagnosis and what, you know, tests and uh, investigations, you know, that are available for cancer that we don't currently use could we potentially bring into to primary care to help us with our patients. And a lot of my work is in prostate cancer. Um, which is obviously a, a topical issue and, and a challenging one for GPs um, and men. And I have uh, I do a bit of work with Prostate Cancer UK uh, to help them with their sort of general practice education offering. And, and given this talk a couple of times now, but very happy to join you and, and talk all things prostate cancer today. Um, so we're going to talk through a few things. So talk about the risk factors um, for prostate cancer. So know which the, the higher risk men. Talk about PSA blood testing. A really crucial thing that GPs need to be aware of is the recent changes in the diagnostic pathway after referral that have sort of changed the you know benefits and harms of prostate cancer detection, which is good to be aware of. Um, there are ongoing inequalities and inequities in prostate cancer diagnosis and treatment that we want to keep in mind and do what we can to try and address. And there have been some um, targeted sort of initiatives at PCN level to try and improve early prostate cancer detection, which is also useful to be aware of. So first of all, the sort of recent backstory. So prostate cancer has become the number one cancer type diagnosed in the UK each year. There's uh, over 50,000 men now being diagnosed each year. And it's even though most men live with rather than die from prostate cancer because of the big numbers, it does still cause a lot of cancer-related deaths. And it's the second biggest core cancer cause of death we have in the UK. <laughs> Uh, you know, the other common cancer types like breast and bowel and lung uh, now have screening programs and prostate cancer does not yet have a formal screening program in the UK. And that's obviously of interest to PCUK. And the graph on the, the right of this slide here just shows the the drop in cases that were picked up as a result of the pandemic. And I mean, you could have seen this graph for every cancer type, but the main difference with prostate cancer is that it was the slowest to recover once you know we got to grips with the pandemic and the health service started to get to some kind of normal. Obviously, we're not in a kind of normal sphere anymore, but um, it was really slow to get going. And the charity did a lot of work with um, the NHS and Department of Health to try and sort of boost the numbers that were being picked up and encouraging men to come forward and GP to, GPs to think about it. And as you can see now, in terms of the long-term trend, it's recovered, but it has taken a while. And I guess the relevance of that for, you know, frontline GPs to think about is just to consider that there might still be some men out there who've been missed. And because prostate cancer can be relatively slower to grow and develop, you might still be seeing some men with late presentation and metastatic disease. So, you know, it's something just to keep in mind, even even though the, the pandemic is receding and, you know, we're trying to get on with life, you know, this is still a factor affecting men and it's something to keep in mind. So, you know, there are not a lot of proven risk factors for prostate cancer, but the, the key ones we know is family history. So, if you've got a first degree relative, your risk of prostate cancer is at least doubled. 
you know, so men who've got brothers or fathers affected by the disease are at higher risk and need to keep that in mind. Uh, if you've got lots of other sort of relatives affected, uh, important to think about. In terms of family history as well, we know that the BRCA mutation is also associated with prostate cancer, particularly BRCA2. So if there's a strong family history of BRCA-related type cancers, such as breast or ovarian cancer, or there's a known BRCA mutation from a relative in the family, then again, important to think about. And ethnicity is the other major thing. You know, we know that black men are twice as likely relative to white men to get prostate cancer. And we know that their outcomes in terms of stage of diagnosis and longer term outcomes from prostate cancer don't compare favorably. And we need to do better with that. So those are the key groups to think in mind. Strong family history of prostate cancer, known BRCA mutation, or men from Black or Afro-Caribbean descent. So there's two main ways that men are diagnosed with prostate cancer. And we know from work by what is now the Health Health Security Agency, formerly Public Health England, um, that over 80% of men will come through primary care before they get diagnosed. And they're either coming because they've got new onset symptoms that are investigated and found to be due to prostate cancer, or they come asking for opportunistic PSA screening for prostate cancer. So talk about the symptomatic presentation first. So that in terms of guidelines that relate to that, that's very fair and square in the sort of nice NG12 guideline, which we're all very familiar with, which is largely a symptom-driven guideline. It affects most of what the two great criteria are. And NICE did recently look at the prostate cancer section of NG12, and they published an update at the end of 2021. Uh, I was one of the GPs on that group. And, you know, even then, you know, sort of primary care evidence for prostate cancer detection is still pretty thin. You know, there's been some work done by the team in Exeter, led by Willie Hamilton and Julie Hibbersley-Cox, who's now at Oxford. Um, we're using primary care data. But you know, we still don't know a lot about you know what are the signs that help us pick up the more aggressive prostate cancers early, you know, versus sort of contributing to the problem of overdiagnosis. But we're doing the best with what we got. So nice, you know, they didn't make any change to this part of the guidelines. So we're still saying if you're examined, doing a rectal exam for any reason, you examine the prostate and you don't think it feels normal, you should refer that patient. Doesn't matter what the PSA says. You know, the likelihood of a prostate cancer with an abnormal DRA in primary care is still well above the nice threshold for a two-week rate referral. So there is a role for DRA in a symptomatic patient. Nice. Very carefully use the word consider PSA uh, alongside DRA for men with symptoms. And and again, that's because the primary care evidence um, isn't brilliant. You know, it's almost always from screenings trials, which in theory are asymptomatic, healthy men from the general population, rather than the men who are bothered enough by their symptoms that they come and talk to a GP about them. So that's something I'm working on. And if you watch this space, there will be some more evidence coming very soon about that. But for now, nice say, think about it, you know, and use it in the consideration of the whole presentation. Now, what NICE did change in 2021 was recommendations around PSA. The previous wording of the guidance said, use age-adjusted thresholds for PSA, but they didn't say what thresholds should be. And we know from work by experts in the field, they've looked at how that's been implemented in different parts of the NHS across the UK, and everywhere was using different PSA thresholds. Some were relying on age, some were relying on just a fixed threshold regardless of age, and the numbers were all being different. So NICE tried to put some numbers on this 
to try and create some consistency in care. And as you'll see, the threshold for what's considered an abnormal PSA in NICE guidance has gone up uh, according to age. And that's done mainly because we know that PSA levels naturally rise as men get older. And much older men are more likely to have benign enlargement of the prostate anyway, which puts out more PSA. So that's why the sort of levels as men get, men get older have changed. And you might see this now when you get your PSA results, the labs might have these thresholds put onto their, excuse me, onto their reports. And equally, some of the two equate referral forms you're filling in now might demonstrate this. So that's where we're up to. A common thing that comes across in cancer research in general, not just related to the prostate, is this assumption that patients with symptomatic cancer are late stage by definition. And we're getting increasing evidence that that's not always the case. So this was work done uh, by colleagues at UCL in London using the 2014 National Cancer Diagnosis Audit data, which covers all cancer types. And within that, they had... Uh, over 1,100 cases of prostate cancer in men presenting to their GP with lower urinary tract symptoms. And when those men were investigated, over 60% uh, were early stage, so stage one or stage two. And then a further 22% were stage three. So, you know, stage four, we're getting to metastatic disease. So it suggests there is a window of opportunity for men coming for the first time to their GP with symptoms to potentially pick up early stage prostate cancer and prevent them getting late stage disease and all the, the horrible things that come with that. So probably is still worth, worth considering investigating in these men, you know, but thinking about, you know, how much is it going to benefit them if they got a diagnosis. Then we come to screening. So that's dealt with by a different set of guidelines, which is uh, the Prostate Cancer Risk Management Program, which is a separate guideline, you know, within a separate part of DH. And that says that any man over 50 can come to their GP and ask for a PSA screening test. Um, and it's a reactive program. So because the UK National Screening Committee says, you know, at the moment, the evidence for, you know, the balance of benefits and harms for men in the UK, they recommend against PSA-based screening on a regular basis. There is still this opportunity on a reactive basis for men to come forward um, and request testing. And I'm assuming you know most of you have had a request from men at some point or the other to have a screening test done. Um, it says men over 50. You know, therefore, there is no recommendation on what you should do with men under 50. Um, there's no recommendation on whether you should treat men any differently based on their family history or their ethnicity, even though we know those are high-risk groups. Um, and in the cancer screening world, again, not just related to prostate cancer, there is this move towards risk-adapted screening. So, you know, in breast cancer or lung cancer, being more targeted about who you screen, but also how often you screen and even what tests you do. So, you know, for now, some high-risk women are getting... MRIs rather than mammographies for breast screening. So, and in the prostate cancer world, there's a lot of discussion about that, about how can we identify high-risk men accurately who might benefit from screening. Um, but at the moment, you know, we don't have good guidance around that. Um, so it's something you're going to have to still use your clinical judgment on, you know, would this man benefit from screening? How often should we be doing it? And we can talk about that at the end if you want. So in terms of primary care, you know, uh, Prostate Cancer UK have a sort of consensus statement around using PSA for screening and 
you know, the opinion of experts is that it doesn't just have to be a GP discussion. If you've got well-trained nurses or, you know, people who are experienced with um, PSA screening and prostate cancer issues that can be trained up, that's potentially a way to deliver that in your practice. Um, and when you're screening context, there's no need to do a DRE. Um, you know, there's been good evidence to show as a screening test, DRE doesn't help. And we know that it puts men off. Men are still, you know, saying, well, I don't want to go to the doctor to get checked out about my prostate issues because I'm going to have a, a big prostate exam and I don't want that. And we know some clinicians are also equally sort of underconfident with it. So, you know, if in a screening context, it's really important to emphasize that, you know, DRE doesn't really have a role. There's no good evidence that it helps pick up asymptomatic prostate cancer. <laughs> So the PSA blood test, I think we know a lot about this sort of stuff. You know, it, it can be beneficial in terms of um, picking up cancer early. Um, and the trajectory of PSA can also be useful. So, you know, some of the evidence when they've gone back and looked at the screening cohorts in more detail, the things that are coming out is that, you know, the lower your PSA when you first get it done, the less likely you are to develop prostate cancer in the long term. And there's different figures suggested as, as a threshold, but a general rule is if a PSA is less than one in a man in, in his 50s, a relatively younger man, the risk of developing prostate cancer in the long term is, is relatively low. Um, and again, the, the trajectory of PSA over time is quite helpful. So if there's a very, if a man's choosing to have screening and having regular tests every few years, and there's a very slow general increase over time, that's pretty consistent with aging and, and not necessarily a sign of prostate cancer developing. If there's a sudden change and there's no sign of infection or any other reason why his PSA should be suddenly rising, that's quite informative as to the need for referral and further investigation. Yeah, but you know, raised PSA obviously doesn't mean cancer's present. It's not tumor specific. It can be raised for a number of other reasons and that's important to keep in mind. There are other things that can lower it as well. Um, so if they're on 5-alpha uh, reductase inhibitors, some other commercially available treatments, if they're obese, um, even uh, diuretics can, can drop your PSA. So it's something to be, to be mindful of. And then, you know, there's this issue of, you know, how do we manage younger men below 50, you know, who don't fall under the PCRMP guidelines who are at higher risk? And again, the prostate cancer... Charity, Prostate Cancer UK Charity has position statement on this. The QR code's on the screen if you're interested. It uh, can also be accessed from their website. Um, so, yeah, if you want to know more about that and what maybe need to be done in younger men, that's something to look at. Equally, if you're unsure, you know, a letter to your local urology department to put it to them, that might also be beneficial. They might be able to give you some advice and guidance on that. So, in terms of Screening frequency. So um, it's hard to sort of give a sort of a, a you know, definition for all men because it does vary, as we said, depending on risk type. This is the most recent uh, guidance from the European Association of Urology, and there's been moves in the EU towards the rollout of prostate cancer screening more widely. So they say, so if you follow the, the left side of this graph, so men in their 50s, you know, if they've got an initial PSA of less than one, you know, as we said, it's fairly reassuring. And, and in, in Europe, they would recommend not having another PSA for five years. If you're a man in your 50s and you've got a PSA between one and three, you consider doing it a bit more frequently. So every two to four years. 
And the EAU guidelines, as, as we do here for screening at the moment, is dealing with a threshold of three or higher for a screening PSA test. And then they would recommend, you know, looking at these other um, factors like family history, risk calculators, PSA um, measures to sort of decide whether they need to go forward for further testing or just go on to sort of regular monitoring. And the thresholds are treated slightly differently in men that are a little bit older. So, you know, men in their 60s who've got a low PSA, you can potentially stop screening. If you've got it in that middle ground, it might be beneficial to repeat it every few years. So generally, yeah, PSA screening less than annual, you know, more often than annually is probably excessive, um, even for high-risk men. Um, but, you know, every sort of one to three years seems reasonable um, for you know, men depending on their level of risk and your concern. So that's the current sort of EAU suggestions on frequency of PSA screening. Uh, yeah, the standard advice about um, things to kind of think about in terms of it, you know, confirming there's no infections, no recent sexual intercourse or vigorous exercise, recent urological procedures, how much of an influence they have on PSA level is debated. You know, there are some um, there's some evidence to say it doesn't actually change your PSA levels significantly, um, but they can artificially raise it. Um, and then, as I said, there's there's drugs and other conditions that can lower your PSA level artificially. So that's PSA in primary care. It's quite useful to understand what's changed in secondary care because that affects the conversations we have with men now. So the other thing that changed in prostate cancer guidance in recent years was what tests do men get once they've been referred. So before 2019, when things were updated, you used to be straight from PSA blood test to a transrectal ultrasound guided biopsy. So urologists and radiologists would use an ultrasound probe to identify where the prostate was and then take a random sample of biopsies from the prostate. The ultrasound is not sensitive enough to show where there might be an abnormality in the prostate. So it's essentially a random sample of the whole gland. Um, and that's and because it's going through the rectum, there's risk of infection. You know, you're putting a needle into prostate, so there's risk of going into retention or developing significant hematuria. So, you know, it was not without its risks, you know. Um, that's changed, though. There have been some trials in the UK and Europe um, around using uh, what's called multi-parametric MRI or MPMRI before biopsy to take a close look at the prostate. So there was the PROMISE trial, which was a UK-wide trial where all men referred had MRI, standard biopsy, and then a kind of a, a reference test biopsy. And the PROMISE trial showed you could potentially avoid a biopsy in men who were going to be very low risk of having prostate cancer in about a quarter of all men if you did an MRI on everyone first. Another trial called the Precision Trial looked at if could you use the MRI information to do a targeted biopsy. So you do the MRI, you see an abnormal area, and then you go and biopsy that part of the prostate um, to sort of target your biopsies. And you know that has led to the need to take less samples to get better yield from the biopsies and has changed the technique and is now changed it from also from transrectal to what's called transperineal. So no longer going through the bowel to access the prostate. The transperineal approach also means they can access all parts of the prostate anatomically. It was quite challenging to get to certain bits when you're going through the rectum. So in summary, all men who get referred now get are recommended to have an MRI. The only reason they wouldn't is that if they can't go through the MRI scanner or if it's so blatantly obvious they've got late stage metastatic disease that they need to be moved straight on to treatment or palliation. And then if men have a normal MRI and they're lower risk, 
the urologist might well counsel them and say, look, the chance of you having prostate cancer is so low, we're not going to go ahead to biopsy. And then they might get discharged back to us. So you might start to see men who've had a two-week weight referral and no biopsy. And if they do get a biopsy, it's now a targeted approach. It's a transparent approach, which is safer. So there's been a lot of improvements and the risks from the diagnostic pathway have changed. And this is sort of more information about that. So um, on the left here, we've got the information about, you know, the, the potential complications and side effects of the old pathway uh, and the overdiagnosis because we weren't doing targeted biopsies, you know, choosing ramble, uh, biopsying ramble at random parts of the prostate meant that sometimes we're picking up low-grade disease that's not going to affect a man's lifetime. Now we can avoid biopsies safely in a significant number of men. We can reduce overdiagnosis, and because of the change in biopsy approach, it's now a safer procedure than it once was. So the team at Prostate Cancer UK have taken some real-world data to sort of evaluate how the change has affected the risk of sepsis, the risk of overdiagnosis or misdiagnosis. And so, you know, if you go through this graph, so you put 10,000 men through a PSA test uh, and the sort of historical biopsy route with a transrectal approach, you know, a small number of men are going to get sepsis after the biopsy. Some men are going to have, you know, no prostate cancer at all and have gone through the biopsy unnecessarily. And some men are going to be overdiagnosed as well as the men who get the diagnosis of clinically significant prostate cancer that, that needs discussions about treatment. <laughs> So with the change now, if you see men with an elevated PSA, most of them, as I said, will have an MRI before biopsy and some men will then get discharged. Uh, and then those do go on to biopsy with the change in approach, the rates of sepsis are now lower, the rates of overdiagnosis are lower and the rates of unnecessary biopsies are also getting better. So there have been improvements in secondary care in terms of prostate cancer diagnosis. And that's translating to, a, a, you know, the estimates from the PCUK team was a 43% reduction in harms. And so they've looked at um, pre-MRI pre data. They've looked at data from the RAPID pathway, which is led by the Imperial College NHS Healthcare in London. And those in Southwest England have got a prostate cancer dashboard where they're tracking all their men who are referred on the two-week weight pathway. And they've looked at their data around complications and unnecessary biopsies. And it's showing a difference. You know, so this is good. This is real-world evidence that the change in NICE guidance in 2019 is, is having an effect for men, which is great. Uh, yeah, and this is looking at in terms of possible harm. So, you know, again, we're talking about unnecessary biopsies dropping from, you know, 10% to, you know, around 2%. Um, Overdiagnoses rates, again, sort of dropping by a significant amount and, you know, lower rates of post-biopsy sepsis in regions within England. So, yeah, so this sort of uh, summary slides from the Prostate Cancer UK about what the, the estimates are around the improvements in the risks for men who go down the prostate cancer diagnostic pathway. So the other thing that's come in recently on the back of you know, the slow recovery of diagnosis for men as a result of the COVID pandemic is that the last couple of um, PCN uh, agreements have included a DES around more proactive and opportunistic prostate cancer detection. So targeting higher risk men, so men within the, the recommended screening window from PCRMP, black men at a lower age and men with a family history, 
and the charity has worked with some GP practices around the country around being, you know, text messaging their patients who fit these categories or having more active conversations in practice and sort of seeing how that changes rates of PSA testing and, and cancer diagnosis. And I think the latest data around prostate cancer stage at diagnosis um, has shown some improvements in terms of the number of men being picked up at a late stage is starting to go down, which is good news. I think the other thing we need to, to acknowledge and deal with is that, you know, there are still persisting inequalities in prostate cancer. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, black men have twice the risk of developing and dying from prostate cancer, and they tend to develop at a younger age. Um, so, you know, we need to think of being, be thinking about trying to pick this up earlier in men from black or Afro-Caribbean backgrounds. The rates of you know, late stage disease at diagnosis does also seem to relate to deprivation, you know. So basically the further north you go in the UK, the more likely someone is to be diagnosed with a late stage disease. So there's another graphic from the charity here around, you know, you know, rates in the southwest and southeast. Still, you know, decent. We you know we're still getting, you know, fifteen in every hundred men being diagnosed with Late stage metastatic disease, but that you know that rises right up to you know twenty percent in Northern Ireland, thirty five percent in Scotland. You know it's pushing twenty percent up where I work. So um, yeah, it's not great. You know and we need to be doing better to try and sort of reduce these inequalities across the UK. And you know, as we mentioned at the start, you know Prostate Cancer UK are very keen to support GPs and practices around you know picking up prostate cancer earlier doing the best we can by men with what's available at the moment. There's lots of resources around the PCN DES, around having conversations with men about PSA, about educating people about screening. Um, so if you're interested, there's lots of support available. You can use the QR code on the slide here, go on the website. The charity also employs uh, nurses who are brilliant. I've met the team there. They're all very, very good. They're very happy to talk to clinicians. They're very happy to talk to men and not just men with a diagnosis, but men who have questions about screening, um, GPs who have, you know, difficult cases or want to know, you know, what to do with certain um, patients. So they have a, a wonderful team there and I would recommend picking up the phone, having a chat to them if that would be helpful. And yeah, further resources in terms of having those conversations with men and those toolkits that you can access through those links. Great. So just to kind of sum up, so really useful for GPs to be aware that the diagnostic pathway for prostate cancer has changed. You know, that all men who get referred now are recommended to have a prostate MRI and a number of them could potentially safely avoid a biopsy. Um, so when you're having conversations with men about, well, these are the pros and cons of the test and this is what's going to happen next, you know, that has changed. Um, PSA test remains the only test we have available in primary care to try and pick up prostate cancer earlier. It is a simple blood test, you know, and now men go for, you know, more accurate testing in secondary care if PSA suggests something abnormal is happening. And yeah, charities, you know, very strongly advocating that, you know, we do the best we can by higher risk men and, you know, they have that patients and GPs have all the information available they need to have those conversations about PSA testing. That was fab. Thank you so much, Dr. Mario. That was really um, fact-packed um, presentation. Um, thanks also for those QR codes. I hope you guys caught them, but um, otherwise we can share um, links in the chat. 
Um, we've got our first question through um, over the chat. Thank you, Jack Lavender. Um, so uh, Jack's asked, I can see why you wouldn't do DRE in a man with raised PSA before referral, but if PSA is not raised in an asymptomatic man, should they still be offered DRE? Thank you, Jack. Yeah, so uh, this has been looked at. So you know that that's a kind of that's a screening test, effectively doing a DRE in an asymptomatic man with a PSA that's not raised. And you know when we've looked at closely at the evidence, it does not help in terms of picking up um, prostate cancer. You know better than than just relying on the PSA alone. And you know we know that examination can put men off coming forward um, to about to talk about concerns about their prostate. So in that situation, if you've done a screening test, um, you know, man, this patient's a low risk man um, and this PSA is normal, there's not anything to be gained by doing a DRE um, and that probably is not needed in that situation. Lovely. We had some really nice words about the talk. So Jack, thanks for your question. Jack also said thanks for the great talk. Abiola said thank you for the informative presentation. And David, thanks all considerable changes in recent years. Um, so follow on question from Catherine. Um, it's more of a comment, actually. Um, I think that you really need to get this message out when the PCN raised this and I queried it a couple of years ago based on my 2019 understanding. Nobody could tell me this. Okay. Catherine, I'm guessing that relates to the diagnostic pathway. Sorry, yeah. Please. Yeah, I was just going to say the PSA screening based on my 2019 understanding, because as a female GP, you get not only PSAs, but breast and, and all the other stuff with HRT. Um, mm. They just said, just do it. They They didn't... Yeah, give me any further guidance as to why we should do it because clearly based on 2019 understanding there's a risk to screening mm. with a program that hasn't that doesn't meet the criteria for screening properly um and i didn't want to cause unnecessary injury or morbidity to my patients but i think it's really important now you've got this and i'm, I'm sorry i didn't quite catch what mp stood for mri yeah. as a standard process this message has got to get out. I think if the patients knew that as well, because they're all terrified of a transrectal biopsy. So yeah. if we could get this out to the public as well as the, the profession, it, I think that's really vital, really vital. Yeah. No, definitely. Thank you, Catherine, for the feedback. And yeah, we, we are conscious that, that that a lot of people do still assume that PMN go straight to biopsy. I, I, I try and spread the word as much as I can. My whole PhD was about prostate MRI. So um, yeah, um, I guess the other thing is that the big prostate cancer screening trials were all done in the pre-MRI era. Um, so they're based on, yeah, going straight from PSA to biopsy. Um, there, I don't know if you've caught the news late last year that Prostate Cancer UK and Department of Health are co-funding a UK-wide screening trial called the Transform Trial, um, which is aiming to look at, you know, putting MRI into the mix, looking at whether genetic testing can be used to do targeted screening. And that's just getting going. So you'll hear more about that this year. Um, and um, it's quite exciting that... Um, yeah, they're going to fund a big trial to sort of try and get that real-world new evidence. Now that the diagnostic pathway has changed, you know, does this change the the risk benefits for prostate cancer screening? Um, and MP stands for multi-parametric, so which is basically they take three different views of the prostate using different MRI techniques and they put them together because the different techniques add some extra information to to help them um, sort of detect if there's an abnormal in the prostate or not. Thing with the MP MRI, it takes like 
30 to 40 minutes in the MRI scanner, but the, the MRI, the prostate MRI experts, particularly in London, are looking at techniques where it could be five or 10 minutes in an MRI scanner and get a good enough view of the prostate to be able to advise biopsy or, or discharge. So that that's evolving as well. That's great. And Claire, thank you so much. Claire's just shared a paper in the chat um, that helps show all MRI modalities risk, reduce risks and harms for patients. I mean, Catherine, you've also made a comment that different, you feel that different types of prostate blood tests might also muddy the water for patients. Um, I think this is something I don't fully understand. I know there were um, certainly research projects looking at different I don't know whether isomers or how they are tracking it, different type, not just your bog standard and inverted commas PSA. Um, and, and quite a few of my patients had read into all of this, um, but it wasn't available in the area, so they couldn't get it anyway. Um, yeah. But, you know, that 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 kind of then they don't feel reassured or not, depending on what their results are. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of different ones. So there are different um, ways you can measure PSA. So there's free PSA and total PSA and free to total PSA ratios, which yeah, not not routinely available from and certainly NHS primary care, but um urologists in other countries, so I know in Australia and America, they do rely on a bit more to try and get a bit more nuance to a, maybe a borderline PSA results. But yeah, so some people might have read up on those. Um, yeah, because of the limitations of PSA, there have been lots of research efforts into other blood tests, uh, urine markers, genetic tests that could be used to do better than PSA. Um, they're all sort of still in the research sphere. In America, you can get um, a lot of the sort of genetic-based testing if you've got health insurance. Um, so American urologists do rely on that a bit more to try and make decisions around biopsy and diagnosis. But again, not routinely available here in the UK, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, thank you, Catherine. So um, so she's sort of asking about sort of, you know, moderately raised PSA. So say between three and 10 or four and 10, local departments asking for that to be repeated. Um, so yeah, we do come across that where in certain regions where second PSA to confirm um, the result is needed or, you know, that you prove there's no infection before referrals are accepted. I can tell you that there's an NHS England program called Getting It Right First or GERFT, which is looking at making some national consistent recommendations around things like this. Um, so, you know, should there be second tests being um, insisted on? The evidence says it doesn't change, significantly change referrals in practice. So, you know, some local departments might find their own experiences that a second test is useful. But when you look at the sort of the evidence on that, doesn't clearly show that it reduces referrals or improves outcomes for men. So they're, they're coming down on that sort of to, to recommend to hospital departments and things that they don't insist on second tests or urine cultures or things like that. Jack's asked about whether MPMRI is definitely available in all areas. So this is something that Prostate Cancer UK is monitoring. Uh, it is being rolled out. Uh, it is the standard care with NICE, but, you know, as per, you know, anything NICE recommends, not everywhere can necessarily deliver. It should be available in all areas, it's getting close to being available. It does require some additional training from urologists, um, sorry, radiologists to be able to interpret the scans because there's quite a lot of information in the MRI. Um, but that those training packages and, and work is being rolled out. So it might not be available everywhere. And the alternative is something called biparametric MRI, which is a slightly shorter MRI sequence that is also 
almost as good as MPMRI that might be being done locally. Um, but if a patient can't access MRI through your local department, there should be like a regional tertiary centre or something that might be able to offer it. That's really helpful practical knowledge. Thank you. Um, well, yeah, we've probably got another five minutes for questions. So again, shout out, I'll put them in the chat. Um, in the absence of anybody having anything pressing, I was wondering, in your experience as a clinician, what are the most common misconceptions from patients in this sort of field? Yeah, so obviously there is the, the reticence around getting examined. Um, there's always a question about the relevance of symptoms. So, you know, there's still some people that get told that all early stage prostate cancer has no symptoms, um, you know, or that, you know, um, everyone has to get screened to pick it up early. I think it's not as black and white as that. You know, we still need to do more digging and that's you know, one of my strands of research is to try and clarify that bit better and give some more, you know, clear guidance around what we should be doing, um, you know, for asymptomatic versus symptomatic men. Um, and I guess that question of how often to screen, I, every time I do this talk for the charity at sort of GP CPD events, that's one of the question that always comes up, you know, how often should I screen a man? It's again, it's, it's hard to give a firm answer on, but, um, yeah, the, the EAU guidelines is the kind of the best available that we have at the moment for how frequently we should be screening men. But I'm sure everybody would like to join me in thanking Dr. Mariel for his extremely informative talk. Um, as you showed, Dr. Mariel, there's a couple of QR codes that um, Prostate Cancer UK have provided in the presentation. What will happen is when we upload this video to YouTube, you'll be able to refer back to them there and use those to find those resources. Brilliant. Well, yeah, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, yeah, and everyone enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, everybody.